I remember being in my home at Christmas time as a child and celebrating Christmas. And here I am in a family of Chinese. My mom is Buddhist. We have a Christmas tree. We have the presents. We're going through everything that any American family would go through. And I have no idea what Christmas is. And I look around and I feel like I'm an actor in a play. That here we are pretending to be a family, pretending to be Americans, pretending to live the life. And I, even as a child, I knew something's weird about this, <laughs> right? Something is really, really strange. And then, the, so that's one example. The other example is you have the title, you have the money. Why don't I feel good? Hello, this is Dr. Eugene K. Choi, and you are listening to the Neurohacking Podcast. If you're a heart-driven leader, then this podcast will show you the proven science-based ways to tap into your unique superpowers. That way, you develop the skills to perform and feel at your best. And believe it or not, the only reason you get stuck and get uninspired and unmotivated is because your brain's been programmed to behave that way. And I started this podcast to show you how to rewire those parts of your brain that aren't serving you so that you can learn the skills to activate your highest levels of performance, get your energy back, and find the clarity you need right now on how to powerfully create that life that you alone were meant to live, all using science. You are listening to episode five and this is my interview with former Hollywood executive turned serial entrepreneur, Teddy Z. All right. Thank you, Teddy, so much for coming on to the show. Really appreciate you taking your time. The first question I have is, can you tell me a little bit about the story, what life looked like for you growing up? I grew up in upstate New York, really small town, a village with a population 5,000, really blue collar more than anything else. So my dad, who had basically a second grade education, taught himself how to read English, was exposed to Americans in his job, and he became uh, a US citizen. He came over from Shanghai to New York City in 1949, and he brought my mom and my oldest brother a year later. And my dad's peak earning year, he made $16,000. So I, I, you know, I felt a lot of shame because we were poor. I felt a lot of shame because we were Chinese. We mm. were one of maybe three or four Chinese families. Wow. There was always financial stress. Right. Um, I had uh, three siblings, two two older brothers and an older sister, and everybody worked. And I remember starting working at, you know, age 11, being a caddy wow. at the golf courses and carrying two bags, and it's really pathetic seeing a four-foot 
and kid carrying two golf bags with the tips were great right great drama and you did it, did that intentionally as opposed to using them. oh of course yeah. and then i i became a, a bellhop so the same thing you can you can wheel a dolly but it's much easier to carry two big valises two small ones and having garment bags hanging over your shoulder and uh, it's a much much more uh impressive feet yeah it's very street smart yeah (laughs) so no i don't need the i don't need the dolly i'll just carry it so a lot of that sympathy yeah you know when we're younger we're often in our own bubble and it wasn't until we had a technological revolution that brought the internet that we became so much more plugged into the world but for teddy what plugged him into the world was because of a technological revolution prior to the internet. So for me, my personal experience was very limited to my town and New York City's Chinatown. I never traveled south of New Jersey or west of Buffalo until I went to college. The whole idea of the vastness of the world only came through media television, film, music. Those are the things that transported me outside of my very personal, limited existence. We would sit around the TV, and that became my best friend. My mother learned uh, to understand English a little bit by watching soap operas. I would do homework to television. I would take naps with the television keeping me company. I became uh, a TV addict. I knew every show on every network at any time, um, and it was going 24-7. Wow. So that sounds like a huge thing right now in the current day and age, but how many networks were there back then? Three. Three networks. Three. It was ABC, NBC. CBS. CBS. Gotcha. Can you tell us a little bit about you got introduced to the world through television, from there to now you're at a point where you're reaching adulthood, entering college. And can you tell us a little bit about that journey? You know, I worked since 11. I saved up an enormous amount of money because we were really frugal. Um, and then uh, it was time to apply to colleges. And my dad was a member of the hotel, restaurants, and bartenders union. And this union uh, every year gave a scholarship to one kid in the entire country. Every other year it was either the uh, Culinary Institute or Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations. If I had been one year older or younger, I might be a chef today. (laughs) But instead, I won the scholarship, this full scholarship to Cornell where the School of Industrial and Labor Relations is really about unions, okay, and workers' rights and things like that. So it really, I had no idea what it was. I had no interest in going there except for it was paying the bills. And then when I did go there, I realized the school aligned with everything that I believed in, workers' rights, fighting for the underdog, Uh, You know, those were really important to me and shaped my entire life. After I had job offers from many different places, I ended up getting an offer from NBC. 
the, one of the three big networks. And uh, I worked in New York City for a year uh, and then got moved to Burbank. And that's where I met a guy named Jeff Zagansky, and he was the president of the network at the time. How often would you say you let yourself feel awe and wonder again, just like you used to as a kid? Because it's because of those types of states that helps you experience moments in your life where it shifts the trajectory of your whole life. And this is exactly what happened to Teddy when he entered into this new environment that he never knew even existed. I was thunderstruck. I realized that the third floor of this building housed the people who put on the TV shows that had shaped my entire life. You know, at, at that time, while I was watching it, all I thought about was consuming television. All I thought about was enjoying it. I never even imagined or thought about that somebody was involved with creating it, and I got to see them up close, and it blew me away. And uh, one of the things that I vowed uh, in watching my dad, who was always basically clinically depressed and stressed, high blood pressure, always trying to make ends meet, was I'm never going to make money the driving force in my life. And what I wanted to do was follow my passion, that I wanted to do a job that I would do even if I wasn't getting paid. So it was one of my first intentions was to step outside of what I was given and risk doing something else. So Jeff Sagansky, I asked him, how did you get this job? And he went on this long story, very, very, um, very giving to share. But all I heard was Harvard Business School. So I applied to Harvard Business School and was fortunate to get in. And I, after two years of, of torture at Harvard Business School, I came out and knocked on his door and said, I'm here. And he said, who are you again? I said, you told me two years ago to go to Harvard Business School to get a job. And he said, I didn't tell you to go. I said, I went to Harvard Business School. Well, for me, it was ignorance is bliss. It was the best thing that I ever did. It's not that I learned an enormous amount of information or knowledge from going to Harvard. The thing that it provided me was a confidence boost to say, you know what, here I am at Harvard Business School. I could measure up with them. So when I came to Hollywood, it was the difference between me being timid and me being at least confident, putting on the, the airs or the act that I've got the goods and I can make a difference here. Wow. So from there to where you started? Like, what was your first step into? I, I, um, I had to rely on the kindness of strangers. I had no friends in the industry. I had no family in the industry. I had to get my resume out and just cold call, knock from on scratch. doors, just some scratch. A friend of a friend of a friend got my resume to somebody who I ended up getting a job uh, interview at Disney. 
as a creative executive. And I was a finalist, but I didn't get the job. But the guy who was hiring, his name was Ricardo Mestres, he recommended me to his friend at Paramount, and they were hiring creative executives. And it was the greatest blessing for me to get rejected at Disney because their culture was brutal. They just ate people up and spit them out. But Paramount, on the other hand, was known as Hollywood University. They treated their executives as people who were valuable, who would be uh, trained and valued and promoted. And so many of the industry executives actually came out of the Paramount experience. So my first job was as a creative executive at Paramount Pictures in Hollywood. My first month on the job, oh, and I was given a secretary, an expense account, and a parking space with my name on it. And here I am, sitting in my office, meeting Tom Cruise and Eddie Murphy my first month on the job. And what was I'm that thinking, like? You know, coming from my modest roots, I, I couldn't imagine. I was waiting for the fraud police to show up and say, hey, we busted you. You don't really belong here. And unfortunately, that was the th thing that was always in the back of my mind that I'm faking it till I make it, that somebody's gonna come and they're gonna find me out and I'm gonna be out of there. So you're thinking, wow, this is my dream come true. But really, you're worried every single moment because um, yeah, I just had so much anxiety and stress over how am I gonna make it? You know, being there was never enough. I wanted more, and I wanted to earn it. You know, there's this entrepreneur, um, Simon Sinek. Um, he once shared, um, he was asking a group of high-performing entrepreneurs. They're like multimillionaires. He asked the group the question, like, how many of you in the room have achieved your financial goal? And he said 80% of the room raised their hands. And he asked another question after that. How many of you actually feel successful? He said 80% of the hands went down. So his whole point was, there's no connection between the standard external measure of success versus the internal feeling of success. Would you say you were going through that a little bit? Like where externally things were looking amazing, but you were just sharing right now, there was like that anxiety, the like, I want more. Uh, were you not feeling successful at that moment? Look, alignment is really important. Aligning your inside with your outside, having integrity, being what you say you are and feeling it are two really important things. When those two measures of the outside you and the inside you don't align, you're out of sync and something is always going to be wrong. It's like wearing a shoe that's one size too small. You're always going to be in discomfort and you're never going to be at your best. And um, I just didn't have the self-awareness at that time to know how to get out of that feeling. So I went about my life in a way of just portraying a role outside and never taking care or paying attention or listening to the inside. Is there any moments you can share a little bit about that? Like bringing us to a moment where that was going on at that point? There's two things okay I remember 
being in my home at Christmas time as a child and celebrating Christmas. And here I am in a family of Chinese. My mom is Buddhist. We have a Christmas tree. We have the presents. We're going through everything that any American family would go through. And I have no idea what Christmas is. And I look around and I feel like I'm an actor in a play. That here we are pretending to be a family, pretending to be Americans, pretending to live the life. And I, even as a child, I knew something's weird about this, <laughs> right? Something is really, really strange. And then, in the, so that's one example. The other example is you have the title, you have the money. Why don't I feel good? You know, so that's that's um, that was the brokenness inside of me. Yeah. So I just buried it. I just buried it. And when you bury things, when you don't confront things, symptoms just keep popping out. So that had profound impact on my relationship within my marriage, and uh, that resulted in behavior that I'm not proud of. Um, I, the woman I married was a very, um, she was a good mother, good wife. I was not a good husband. And as a result of that, I, I hit rock bottom. I lost my family, basically. Wow. And so after that point, it sounded like you did have a turning point after the rock bottom. Yeah, you know, I, it's the funny thing is the worst things in life turn out to be blessings in disguise. Sometimes the best things in your life that you consider the best things are curses. And uh, so for me, I realized that it took hitting rock bottom for me to, to, to be reborn, to start over. And for that, I'm grateful that I had that opportunity, that second chance. It's been, it's been profound, you know. Um, I've gotten to know myself. I got to find my true purpose. Um, I understand what love is all about. I've understood how to not be so selfish, and hopefully to help other people. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been a great ride. Tremendous yeah. ride. But what I have that's even better is something I never want to give up. You know, the, when at, the, at my lowest moment, um, it was, I was contemplating suicide. And I remember looking up and saying, God, I know you're there. I surrender. I can't deal with this anymore. I'm going to let you handle this. And whatever you have in store for me is fine. Now, I was not a religious person. And I was not a spiritual person. But because I was so desperate, I didn't know it was either kill myself or unburden myself. So this, this moment for you where you finally felt a lot more free than you used to. Yeah. Right? What I'm noticing is, would you agree that it sounds like what happened there was like, for one of the first times in your life, you finally felt safe. Like there's no fraud police chasing yeah. you anymore. For the first, one of the first times in your life, you felt this sense of belonging, this sense of feeling safe where it's just like, yeah, just who you are is good. Well, you know, we, we 
for many successful people, you have to try to be perfect. And it's impossible. So once I acknowledged that I was broken, that I met other people who were broken, that there was um, even the, the people who pretended to be perfect, they were broken. And once that understanding happened, it was like, wow, then I found like-minded people who shared the same thing. And I realized everybody is the same. Now when somebody does something crazy or stupid or, or evil or mean, it's so much easier to see that they're broken, that there's a commonality. They're just in pain. So the biggest thing was when you're in pain, you try to do everything to get rid of that pain and everything becomes very self-centered. Everything becomes about me. And there's a big dynamic shift in my perspective now. And it's amazing how much more joy you can get by not making everything about you, but making things about other people. Right then that I started thinking wait, about wait. Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence and the part about our right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I remember thinking, how did he know to put the pursuit part in there? That maybe happiness is something that we can only pursue and maybe we can actually never have it, no matter what. How did he know that? So one thing um, um, I wanted to share a little bit was that, you know, Sigmund Freud, the psychologist, um, there was these two psychologists back then, him and another guy named Viktor Frankl. Freud's argument was, you know, man's purpose in life is to have pleasure, like it's to seek pleasure. Frankl's argument was, no, it's not to seek pleasure. Man's purpose in life that actually helps them feel fulfilled is meaning. And his story is very interesting because he was a Holocaust survivor. And he was a psychologist, uh, the Nazi concentration camp. Um, the people, they were like, you know, we have these suicidal Jews here. It was like tens of thousands of them. We need them not to kill themselves because they need to work. We need you to prevent them from committing suicide. So he applied his principle of helping them establish a sense of meaning in their lives, kind of sharing this message. If you kill yourself, you're letting the enemy win. None of them committed suicide. He prevented from doing that. And the reason I'm sharing that is just like, I think no matter how much pleasure we have in our lives, that emptiness will be there unless we have that purpose, that meaning. Yeah. And it sounds like that's one of the main things I'm noticing that really help, helped you find that freedom again. Well, you know, the funny thing is um, I was ex uh, executive producer of Pursuit of Happiness. And everybody talks about wanting to be happy. And what I realized that happiness is not derived by how much money is in your bank or where you vacation or what your address is. If you look at the movie, which there were a lot of talented people who drove that, I had a very small part to play in that. Uh, 
is that Will Smith's character and Chris Gardner, all he wanted to do was to be productive. He wanted to take care of his family, and he wanted to provide for his family. And God placed us all on this earth. Our great creator placed us on this earth to create, not to recreate. So what is creation? You know, it is about being productive. So meaning in your life equates to productivity in your life. We were all created to be productive, to do something special that nobody else can do. When somebody finds that purpose that God created them for, magic happens. The people who are flourishing and are the most productive are the ones who are aligned with the purpose for which they were created. And it's so tempting to go for the money or to go for the prestige. And when you do that, there's misalignment. So um, to take it out of the religious uh, sphere, we all have our passions. We all have that special gift. And it's incumbent upon all of us, if we're to reach our potentials, to understand what that gift is and to pursue it with all our might. I love it that you bring up the point where pleasure is much more inward focused as opposed to meaning doesn't happen unless it's more of an outward focus than a service-oriented kind of mindset. So would you agree, like, at that point in your life, you finally actually started feeling successful? I don't even use the word successful. That's what other people say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have uh, pretty good credits. I've worked at good companies. I have good friends. But it's really about, do I love getting out of bed every morning? Are there opportunities for me to go forward and to be productive? You know, um, so I'll use an analogy. Every, everybody loves fruit. Everybody wants to take a bite of that fruit, okay? What I believe is it's not about eating the fruit. It's not about the destination. It's not about getting it. It's about the journey. It's about the seeds inside the fruit. Seeds inside the fruit you can plant and have thousands more opportunities come your way. And that's what excitement is for me, is the potential and the possibility of what's yet to come. And it's a moving target, but I love that it's a moving target because I don't want to stay still. There's still too much work to be done. There's still too many dreams to pursue and mountains to climb. And I love having those challenges. And I think when those possibilities and the potential disappears, that's when we wither. You know, I love that you mentioned that because if we're looking at it from a practical um, like perspective, right? Everyone loves to dream, but the reality for a lot of people is, yeah, life is hard, and there's a lot of failures that come along the way. Like, how, is, how has your approach been with that? Because failure is inevitable. <laughs> how do you stay so, optimistic? So, you know... Hopeful? I mean, <laughs> there. You know, I, I. Of course, I like to t- talk about the movie Hitch or Charlie's Angels or, or, Pursuit of Happiness. But there are literally almost a hundred projects that failed. That they don't define me. You know, Michael Jordan missed half of his shots. 
Mickey Mantle, Barry Bonds, whoever, baseball player, they would not get a hit seven out of 10 times. That is life. Yeah. Was there something that helped you embrace that? The concept that like failure is necessary and it's actually very helpful and useful into kind of moving forward and growing. Growing up poor. (laughs) I will never forget or take for granted what I have because I know what it was like. I know the sacrifices my parents made. I, you know, sometimes people make fun of me for uh, wanting to save money, a dollar here, anything like that. Why would I not value every single thing that I have? People work very hard for me to have this opportunity and that's what I wanna pay forward. Thank you for that. So when it comes to our community, now they're aching for something that brings more meaning into their lives, right? They're starting to feel that because they've reached survival, like they've gotten it. Now they're stuck. And what I'm realizing after that is just like, it's so interesting because if you think about it, now is a time more than ever, the possibilities for our lives is so much more compared to decades ago. And like, it's blowing my mind, like things like YouTube, it gave you a platform, like you can confirm with me if I'm wrong, but like back then, like to get it break into Hollywood, like connections was really helpful, like who you knew was really helpful. But now is like, there's a lot of things where there's no excuse. You don't need as much of a middleman. If you wanted to create your own platform, there's a lot of people who are doing it now. Same thing with the concept of building a business, like for less than a cup, a cup of coffee a month, you can open up a website. So I'm, I'm like really fascinated by the fact like, hey, like the risk is less, the opportunities have grown, but why are still people not taking those risks? Well, you know, I, I talked about the fraud police and always thinking that they would show up and take it away. And I often talked about Hollywood being an equal opportunity discriminator, that they're not picking on you because you're Asian or because you're black. They're picking on you because they have the power and you don't have the power. If we feel empowered, anything is possible. And that's that to me is is the key. Yeah, that's amazing. So I'm just curious. So like, let's say I was a young professional and I come up to you and I say like, Teddy, man, like, I know there's something out there for me. I still can't place my finger on what it is that I have that's unique about me to offer the world. I don't know what to do. And I feel so stuck to leave behind what I've worked so hard to build. Nobody ever has the right answer. It's trial and error. And you're never going to go find your dream by staying in your lane. If you know your lane is not going to lead you to your dream, why stay in that lane? You have to try other routes. It doesn't mean you can't come back. The biggest problem is inactivity, is paralysis by analysis. Just stepping out and feeling empowered by doing something else and even failing and trying something else, that's really important. Hmm. And it can't be avoided. Yeah. What we've done in our lives is we've built so many layers, protective layers around ourselves. But those protective layers also guard against real true self-awareness 
And I think spending the time getting to know yourself is so important. We're all so busy chasing something else outside that we don't know what's inside. So it all starts inside. There's got to be a balance between nurturing yourself and getting aware of who you are with the doing of things and always having that in balance. So whether it's counseling or therapy or training programs or development programs, it's always great to get out there, number one. And number two, it's always great to share with other people who are admitting the same issues. Um, It's that fellowship of knowing that you're not alone that brings power. Awesome. I'd love you to um, give your thoughts a little bit on the fact that, yeah, like now is a time more than ever if you really wanted to pursue a passion and even make a living off of it. It's more possible now than it was many years ago. I'd love your thoughts on that, especially with the evolution of technology, you know, things like YouTube and platforms that like anyone can use. Um, I, I think those that have gone before you have helped to open those doors. Um, it's up to you to step through them. Uh, there are no more excuses. Um, technology is mind-blowing. Uh, you know, I, I'm a product of Hollywood where people are risk-averse. In the most risky business, people are risk-averse. The, everything is about mitigating risk. Um, they don't want to change the way things are done. We've had an entire industry, the music industry, disappear. CDs and LPs and, you know, all disappeared because Hollywood stuck their head in the sand and said, we're going to avoid change, okay? I actually think with AI coming that everybody better become aware and flexible and you better step into your purpose and find your gift because what you're doing in your job now that you hate somebody's going to come along and put an algorithm together with big data and they're going to replace you anyways so you might as well see how the world is changing and what your place is in it Uh, otherwise you're going to get swept away that sounds like a dire thing but look at where we are 10 years ago iphone came out before that what happened in 10 years we've had turned the world upside down where literally you know i can call korea china russia and be instantly connected by video crazy right i mean it used to cost a fortune to do that i i'm just uh I'm just blown away by what's happening in technology. And if we don't use it for us, it's going to be used against us. Mm-hmm. Now, now that you bring up the, th- the term middleman, I'm kind of curious on your thoughts on, on that as well. Because more and more middlemen are kind of getting phased out, right? We have Airbnb, Uber, right? Like blockchain is another perfect example. What are your thoughts on that in terms of the future? On like where people, how people should kind of think about this? Okay, let me let me talk about YouTube, for example. Okay, if you're a YouTube creator, a lot of people got their start by creating content on YouTube. But YouTube sells advertising on your content, and they take forty-two percent. Now. Um, For many content creators, it's great marketing. It's a way to make your name. But in society, there's now the very wealthy 
and there are the poor and the middle class is disappearing. And that's true also on YouTube, where you can have a million subscribers and still not be able to make a living by generating content. Now, why is that? There, I look at it as a, a waiter in a restaurant. They make 15% a tip, 15 to 20% tip on every check. Well, if you're a YouTube creator, you're giving 42% away to YouTube. You're giving 5% to your lawyer, 10% to your manager. You have to pay the government their take. You have production costs. If a YouTube creator can make 15% on their content, it would be a miracle. They're making less than a waiter in a restaurant makes, even though you're, it's their personality, their creation, their content. So what blockchain will enable is to get rid of middlemen like Apple, YouTube, Netflix, and create this peer-to-peer -peer opportunity where artists and creators can um, get their content directly to the users and save that opportunity of, you know, enjoying the lion's share of the revenue. That's revolutionary. That's taking, uh, getting rid of the middlemen. Um, we all, we're, we're immigrants. A lot of immigrants send money back to their families in other countries. Uh, the Philippines, it's a perfect example. If you're sending $100, it's onerous to have Western Union take their cut. I mean, it's it's a lot of money. So for uh, if you use the blockchain, you can make that transfer and it doesn't take, a, it's almost instant and it costs pennies. So those are the kinds of things where um, the people in power, the, the middlemen, the big institutions, they don't want to have change because they like the power. And blockchain basically takes power back and gives it to the people. Yeah, and that's, would you agree that's what makes this exciting is there's just more opportunities opening up Absolutely. everywhere. Absolutely. So between AI and blockchain, um, there's incredible opportunity. It's just about not fearing change, but embracing it, knowing that it's coming and knowing how to make it work for you. Awesome. So what's something um, that you've been excited about that you've been working on these days? I have so many things I'm excited <laughs> about. I'm, I believe that uh, the future of blockchain is just incredible, that it's going to disrupt so many of the big companies, the middlemen in this world, that it uh, levels the playing field for uh, people who are in need, uh, people who are can't afford a banking account or are underbanked. Um, yeah, it's. I think in the next uh, seven to ten years, we're going to see enormous change that will resemble what happened during the birth of the internet. You know. Um, I am really excited about what's happening in uh, Asia. Um, I've mentored a couple of people who are uh, producing The Bachelor in Vietnam. It really helped them get their start. Um, Vietnam is one of those countries that the middle class is just growing and that the media business will have a profound impact on how young people dress and dance and eat and entertain and 
and um, uh, it's just exciting to be on a wave of change and ushering uh, in a whole new generation of young Vietnamese on how to be consumers and how to join the global community. Yeah, yeah and that's, would you agree that's what makes this exciting is there's just more opportunities opening up Absolutely. everywhere. Absolutely. So between AI and blockchain, um, there's incredible opportunity. It's just about not fearing change, but embracing it, knowing that it's coming and knowing how to make it work for you. Awesome. Where can people find you? How can people hear about you? Uh, learn about I'm you? on Twitter at uh, T-E-D-D-Y-Z-E-E. -E. I'm on Facebook, Teddy Z Producer. I'm on Instagram, but, uh, you know, LinkedIn, I'm pretty accessible. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining, Teddy. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you found it valuable, please share it with someone that needs to hear it, whether it's on your social media or messaging it directly to someone. In the meantime, if you want to learn the science behind how to connect with your unique purpose so that you can bring out that value inside of you that only you can bring into the world, then you can access my free training at destinyhacks.co. All right. That wraps up this episode. I'll see you on the next one. Take care.